Thank you, worship team. Yes. God, illumine our minds. I like that word. Now, scripture reading time. If you have a lot electronic Bible or hard copy Bible, either way, please open to the book of Matthew, chapter 24. Pastor Matthew is going to preach from verse 1 to 35, but for reading part, we are only doing verse 30 to 35. So again, it's found in the book of Matthew, chapter 24. We're going to read, I'm going to read, chapter 24, verse 30 to 35. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. May we invite Pastor Matthew to preach to us. Some of you are probably aware that uh, on January, the end of January, January the 24th of this year, spoke six weeks ago, six weeks in a bit, that uh, the Science and Security Board of Atomic Scientists moved forward the doomsday clock to two minutes before midnight. Maybe you saw that uh, as they discussed that in the media. The, the nuclear clock is a symbolic representation of how close the world is, according to their perspective, uh, to catastrophic destruction by nuclear war. Uh, the closer the clock, of course, stands to midnight, the nearer they speculate the world is to this kind of global disruption. Because of the extraordinary danger of the current moment, the Science and Security Board moved the minute hand of the doomsday clock 30 seconds closer to catastrophe. It is now two minutes to midnight according to this community. The closest that the clock has ever been to that so-called doomsday. Um, as, in fact, uh, the last time it was ever that close was in 1953 at the height of the Cold War. Uh, very few of us will here probably were alive for that. Um, so in announcing the decision, the, the bulletin of the atomic scientists cited things like the failure of uh, I don't want to get political here, but this is their statements, the failure of President Trump and other world leaders to deal with these looming threats of nuclear war and of the climate change. It, from their perspective, things are very abnormal. There's a withdrawal from moving towards a safer and a greener planet, uh, the security of the planet from global warming and environmental management uh, is at risk. 
many of us, of course, have followed the media on some of the massive uh, wildfires that went on in Greece, in Sweden, uh, in California, some of the deadly heat waves in Asia, uh, Australia, Europe, North America. And the security of the planet from nuclear war is something also that they're talking about has escalated as superpowers are in the arms race, as people like Putin has said, that's it, I'm abandoning the agreement that was signed back in the Reagan administration. Uh, and people begin moving with their scientific capacities or capabilities to utilize all the technologies, uh, satellites and nuclear power to win in this international uh, arms race, curbing perhaps a conflict or running into one. There's a real threat of the information warfare and other technologies. Our, our world has never been so vulnerable to uh, catastrophe from nuclear weapons and climate change as it is in the, present, in the present time. If you live in a city that has a military base or has an oil refinery or oil storage facilities or it has a university or it has a major airport or an important industry, there is a nuclear missile aimed at that location right now. We live in dangerous times. There are over 15,000 nuclear missiles on the planet, and the nine nuclear weapon-holding countries are in conflict with each other. NATO with Russia, for example, the United States with countries like Iran, North Korea, India, and Pakistan. We can talk about those things. In a sense, it feels like we're just one misunderstanding or one mistake or one fanatic politician away from nuclear conflict. For example, uh, Russia has some 4,000 strategic nuclear bombs, enough to heat, hit each major North American city. So in a, in a nuclear war, it's estimated immediately some 400 million people would die, and North America only has 579 million. Most of us would die in several ways, either through radiation, building collapses, or third-degree burns. But that's not all. There are collateral effects, side effects, unattended consequences like the effects on agriculture and starvation and a nuclear winter freeze, the temperature would drop from nuclear smoke, much what has been speculated to have happened when the dinosaurs were on the face of the earth and, and something hit the earth. No nation would be safe as the nuclear smoke and fallout travels around the globe. Now I'll bet at this point of the talk I'm not giving you warm fuzzy feeling. Um, because it brings up the question, of course, of what the future holds for us. A future in part that we're not in control of, and it makes us wonder about God's clock on the world. Our reading this morning is one where Jesus is with his disciples, and he gives a sermon, and he foretells the future. It's 20 to 11, so I'm not going to be able to, to really shake all of the, the goodies out of this that I have for you for you this morning, but we'll, I'll try to jump around a little bit and try to uh, give you some kind of a sum. In verses 1 to 35, Jesus prophesies about events that would be fulfilled in the 70 AD destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But there's a double reference in these verses. We only had the end of the reading uh, to the prophetic foretelling tied to the events surrounding the return of Jesus Christ. So Jesus remarks concerning the temple in verse 1. I'm going to be following verse uh, chapter 24, so please keep your Bible or your, your 
Bible app or whatever it is open there, unless they've got it up here. Maybe you could put it up here too. Um, in verse 1 it says, Jesus left the temple. That's after he had all these debates with all these various Pharisees and Sadducees, and he pronounced woes on, on the, the state of affairs of the religious system in Judaism. And he, and he was walking away when his disciples came up to him and called his attention to these beautiful, the beautiful buildings of the temple. The temple had all these gold plates on it, and marble. Uh, it was about five foot football fields, large. It was a gorgeous place. But in verse 2, Jesus paints this dark picture of the future of the temple, of this whole thing. He says, do you see these things? He, Truly I tell you that not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. It's shocking that Jerusalem was the holy city the rebuilt temple was something that was the pride of the nation. And Jesus makes this statement about its future, about its destruction that's going to happen in 70 AD. Jesus knows the future. Jesus knows our future. And like Israel, it completely depends on our faith in or rejection of Jesus. And Jesus was saying that it would be demolished. So naturally they want to know. So the disciples asked Jesus in verse 3 a double question, a double question. And it says that as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, in other words, he's across the valley looking over the temple and, and the city. So if you can envision that for some of you who have been there. And they come to him privately and they say, tell us, they said, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So this is a double question. It's two things, one about the temple and one about Jesus's when he's going to come. And actually, the whole chapter 24 splits between those two questions to some degree. Today, we're going to look at the question, when will this happen? And the big idea is, is just grab this big idea, is to choose or ex to accept or reject Christ in our lives is a choice that has long-run implications of life or death. We make that decision every morning when we get up. We choose the life of Christ or we choose to reject him. This is called uh, Jesus' Olivet Sermon, actually chapter 24, 25, because he does it on the Mount of Olives. And um, it's concerning the end of the old order, a future destruction in the reign of, of God's coming. Jesus begins to describe the events that are leading up to the fall of the temple and the catastrophic events within the history of Judah and Jerusalem. However, constantly in these 35 verses, there's this mixture of foretelling of events that are both near and some that have implications for the final end times. This is what gets so confusing for the church when they read this, this section is that they think it's all about end times. They, 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 we don't have a sense of the context unless we talk about it. Well, Jesus goes on in verse 4, he says, Watch that no one deceives you. Five, for many will come in my name claiming I am Messiah and will deceive many. Any of these prophetic figures, messianic deliverers, claiming to be sent by God, causing people to be led astray. And we see this in our own lifetime. This is got, continued on into the church age in which we're in. The church age is from the time of Jesus' ascension to now is considered the church age. You will hear of wars, verse 6, and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is to come. These were very... Um, unsettling times in Palestine. By AD 68, the Roman Empire is going to be torn up by war, and they're caught in the midst of this. War, of course, is a part of human history, and suffering is a part of life until the second coming of Christ comes to heal creation. 
Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. This political rivalry, natural disasters that will be occurring in the climate, in the environment, as they do in all periods of history and in the, this, this period that we're in. The historical records tell us that of the first century, that there were all kinds of serious earthquakes happening in Asia Minor, in AD 46, and AD 62, and AD 67 in Jerusalem. And the historical records tell us of a widespread famine in AD 46. These continue, but these are the beginnings. These are part of the fallen world's troubles. But, verse 8, all these are just the beginning. Women, like Braxton Hicks, not the real thing yet. This is just the beginning. For in this life, in the church age, the beginnings of various kinds of sufferings. So let's remember the context here is the suffering of Jerusalem, but we're also being, it keeps shooting back forward. So Jesus begins to talk, to try to encourage them to stand firm in difficult times. We get this in verses 9 to 14. These, these would be crazy times in world affairs in this context in which Jesus is talking. And when the world is kind of going crazy, it's easy for followers to feel discouraged or frightened. I mean, sometimes I'll be honest with you, I have to shut off the news. I feel much better watching a, a pleasant film sometimes than just to watch what's going on in the news. I, I get that. But next, Jesus tells the kinds of specific experiences that his followers in the faith community would go through in these troubled times, which also includes throughout the church age. Verse 9, then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. He warned them they would be unpopular for believing in Jesus. Nothing has changed, by the way. It's dot, dot, dot. The stakes would be high as Christians move beyond Israel to preach into the uttermost parts and to outside of, of that area. Verse 10, at that time many would turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other. There will be apostasy and betrayals. And many false prophets would appear and deceive many. Deception would be the order of the day. And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most would grow cold. In other words, some will cool off and become useless for the kingdom of God. This is the danger. The only safeguard, verse 13, is the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And Jesus told them that they need to persevere in faithfulness. And that's still true. The person who remains faithful to the end will be saved. That's a great question for us to ask ourselves. Do we renew our trust in Jesus every morning? Have we renewed it this morning? Renewed and placed our trust in him and not leaning on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledging him. Jesus makes a summary statement in verse 14. He says, In this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, then the end will come. Contextually, of course, there is envisioning the, the known Mediterranean, Mediterranean world of the time, gets the gospel, and then, of course, the preaching of the good news to reach all the nations. How's this going? How are we doing? I've heard some few comments earlier uh, on the platform about this. You know, it's estimated there are about 7.47 billion people in the world today. About 3.15 billion of them live in unreached people groups with little or no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. According to the Joshua Project, there are approximately 16,800 people groups in the world with about 6,900 of them considered unreached. 
the vast majority, that's 95% of these least reached groups exist in the 1040 window. And less than 10% of missionary work is done amongst these people. We have a job to do. We have something to pray for. We have ministries to support. We have a testimony and we have a part in this and a call to it as part of the, the Great Commission. But Jesus further remarks concerning the beginning of the end for Jerusalem through verses 15 to 28. And he says in verse 14, then the end will come. In a sense, he's still speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And in a sense, he is still answering the first part of the disciples' question regarding the temple. Building up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, what happened was in 66 AD, the Jews revolted against Rome. Rome got distracted because of some political issues between 67 and 68, but there was, a, there was some civil war going on in this region. In 69, the Romans decided to attack again, and Jerusalem was put under siege for five horrid months. There's something to read about. You read about it in Josephus of Antiquities. And until the temple was destroyed in AD 70 by Titus, every stone was thrown down from that temple. Thousands and thousands of Jews were butchered and slaughtered. Many were taken off to, um, to be in the circus as uh, slaves. Verses 15 to 28 really uh, are taking us in a depiction and confirming what Jesus is saying in this prophecy. Verse 15, so when you see standing, in, and, and they're also shooting forward too. So there again, there's this contextual and shooting forward. For example, when you see, verse 15, standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, let those in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, what are we talking about? During the intertestamental period, uh, the Antiochus uh, Epiphanes had conquered Jerusalem, stopped the Jewish sacrificial worship, and began doing pagan sacrifices, in fact, even sacrificing pigs, on the altar, which was an abomination. Now, this is a worship of something else. Now, is Jesus telling us that there would be some act of sacrilege, some desecration in the temple that would alert believers disasters about to fall on Jerusalem and the temple? It's the conviction of some 4th century church fathers, Eusebius and Epiphanius of Salamis, they cite a tradition that before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Jerusalem Christians had miraculously, prophetically been warned to flee to Pella across the Jordan River. However, let's look at this again. The Romans didn't do anything but burn the temple and throw the stones down. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-4 to does tell us that in the church age that the Antichrist will proclaim himself to be God. There is the abomination. This is now pointing into our time of someone who rises up and calls himself God. Contextually in that time, those in the towns and villages in the province of Judea, they were to run to the hills and the Roman forces would take control. Jesus tells this, this horrible circumstances between verses 17 to 26 about those being refugees. But he also refers to the great tribulation. So he's talking about something that's a near future event and foreshadowing a distant event in all of this. He says, let nobody on the house talk, go down, take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to their cloak. How dreadful it'll be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in, in winter on the Sabbath. In a sense, here, 
we get contextually Jesus described the horrors of the Roman five-month siege on Jerusalem. But there is coming a time Jesus leapfrogs over the near event to the far where things will be much, much worse. Verse 21, For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, never to be equaled again. And if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets, in other words, people who set themselves up as deliverers from troubles, will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Verse 25, see, I've told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out there. Here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Jesus actually then says what he's saying is that, oh, and just aside, the real second coming of Christ will not be like these fake imposters during the siege of Jerusalem. The second coming of Christ will be as unmissable as the flash of lightning which crosses the blazes across the sky. Verse 27, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 28, Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Now what's he getting at? Vultures have a good eye to see things far away, okay? And quite similarly, a very keen-eyed, sensitive disciple of Christ who sees and realizes that Jerusalem will be taken over acts. When you see, then escape. Jesus then uses, I, I, I think it is poetic and symbolic Old Testament language to help us understand that the destruction of the temple and the false power religion it was becoming to represent was the removal of a corrupt power structure, verse 29. The destruction of the temple was because of the Jewish leader's rejection of Christ. It was the end of this. And the new power that takes its place is the vision of Christ on the throne gathering his chosen from over the world. This is 30 to 31. Let me read 29 through that. Immediately, verse 29, after the, the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. This is taken out of Isaiah 13. Verse 30, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth, he draws this out of Daniel 7, will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Verse 31, he will send his angels with a large trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds and one end of the heavens to the other. With such an image of the risen Christ, are you ready to see him? Are you living ready? Jesus' summary answer to the disciples' first question is really in verses 32 to 35. Remember that the disciples' first question was regarding the destruction of the temple. When will these things happen? And Jesus wraps up with three comments, right? He said, now, verse 32, learn a lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know summer is near. When there's leaves, there's fruit coming. Verse 33, even so when you see these things, you know that it is near and is right at the door. That Talking contextually in the same way, the Roman soldiers advance and siege will inform the disciples that the process which will end the temple's destruction is near. That's the contextual. Verse 34, I truly, I tell you, this generation certainly will not pass away until all these things have happened. The Roman advance to destroying the temple was about 37 years later. In fact, when many of Jesus' contemporaries were still alive 
and were well aware of what was going on at that time. Jesus said in verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, after reading a section like that, and we went through that in at 200 miles an hour, okay? What is the take home for us? Jesus spoke in detail of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem that would ha it did happen some 37 years later. It happened, and hindsight is 2020. It's placed there for us to pay very close attention. It points to the reliability of Jesus' words, right? We know somewhere around 33 AD he was crucified. These things happen. It points to the rock-solid words of Christ because Jesus was accurate in prophesying that Jerusalem would fall and that the temple would be destroyed. We need to pay attention because the near event of 70 AD was a symbol of the great event of the second coming of Christ. And there is a warning here to that generation and to our generation about paying attention to the condition of our soul. There is a warning here to prepare for tough times ahead. Prepare yourself mentally. Prepare yourself spiritually so that you don't panic when things start going kind of crazy and, and the things you see on the media and all that kind of nonsense so that you don't give up and get discouraged. There's encouragement if you're a follower to maintain your hope, to persevere, to not let your love for God and for each other to dry up, as it was noted in this particular portion of the chapter, to be steadfast in living for God. And there is a reminder here that the mission of God is to reach lost people and that we are given that mission. It hasn't gone away. So we need to be prepared and we need to stay alert. And we need to be reminded from this portion of the Word of God that He is sovereign. That God is the one who knows what's going on on the world stage. That God is the one who knows what's going on in your life and in my life. He knows what's going on in your family. He knows what's going on in your business. He knows what's going on in your relationships. He knows what's going on in this church. He knows what's going on in your mind and in your heart. And we can trust him completely. Can you say that with me? Trust him completely. Say it with me. Trust him completely. I need to stop. It's 11 o'clock. I could have gone on for 15 minutes more, but the Lord bless his word to our hearts. And I'll turn it back to your chair.